0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: The angriest man in comedy has a lot to be mad about right now.
2: I'm avoiding getting started because it's hard to be funny now. And th- you know, you know why? Because it's, it's hard to be funny when everything's well going so great. <laughs> It's just hard to be funny when everybody's so happy. I travel everywhere, and you know, everywhere I go, I know it seems odd, but they are smiling here to here. It's like everybody's on ecstasy. It is like wandering through a great big Christian camp. And as a Jew, let me tell you how exhausting that is.
1: This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today on the show we have the comedian who has spent the last 24 years delivering furiously funny rants on The Daily Show, Lewis Black. Lewis has a new stand-up special out today called Thanks for Risking Your Life. He taped it at a casino in Michigan on Friday, March 13th, after the entire country had already started to shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. In it, he brilliantly captures that moment where we all knew something big was happening, but had no idea how bad it would get. And no one is better at capturing that precarious mood than the man behind Back in Black. Lewis and I talked about everything from his reaction to the first presidential debate, to the time he dodged a series of angry phone calls from Donald Trump, to the period of time when he nearly lost his lucrative Daily Show gig. He also shared stories about going on his first USO tour with Robin Williams, Kid Rock, and Lance Armstrong, and what it was like to personify anger in Pixar's Inside Out. Let's get to it. Here's me with Lewis Black.
2: I don't mean to be a prick about this, seriously.
1: No, not at all. Not at all. I'm very happy that you're doing this, and I'm excited to talk to you, especially the morning after this debate, which I feel like I have to get your perspective on. I have to know what you thought about this insanity that happened last night.
2: Well, it was I mean, what happened last night is unconscionable on so many love it's, it's a debate, okay? There are rules to a debate, right? It wouldn't have been hard to do this. There's adults there. Every so often, I've regretted in my life not having children from time to time. But basically, I've used Feel like I made that choice and I've lived with that choice, and it, it isn't something that undermines me. But it, nights like that, watching that debate, and if I was <laughs> sitting with children and having to explain what they were seeing, I would lose my mind. I needed to <laughs> sit by myself and bellow at the top of my lungs. They're my age. Chris Wallace, I don't know how old he is, uh, That they couldn't... We did better debates in high school, okay? I mean, I'm sure that in places like rural Minnesota, they did debates over fishing rights that were better <laughs> run. Run like 10th graders. That Chris Wallace... I don't think that Chris Wallace did the You know, look, he went to high school, okay? <laughs> he, all right? He knows what a debate is about, okay? There's no you button? Seriously? That they don't stop the debate immediately when the first outburst occurs? Not that it becomes news about how many times who led to what outbursts? You set the rules at the very beginning. Come on.
1: Yeah, but what do you think Chris Wallace, you think there's something Chris Wallace could have done to get Trump under control?
2: Yeah, he could have stood up and said, I will not tolerate this. What he said two-thirds of the way through the debate should have been said at the very beginning of the debate. I watch people today sitting in, you're watching a variety of news shows, whatever they are now, they're not news shows, they're whatever. But in each one, there was a discussion of the sitting with the children and having to, and kind of having to deal with what, is this the way it is? It was never like
1: Yeah, I think Stephen Colbert said last night, for Pete's sake, children watch this.
2: (laughs) And I've said it for a long time. I've said it from the very beginning. I said it from the first time they allowed the leader to say the things that he was saying and that it was considered acceptable. And it was acceptable for adults, okay? Not acceptable for me to put that out. If I put that out on my... Some of the stuff that he said, unacceptable.
1: Yeah, it feels like the last four years were all leading up to that moment last night. It was pretty
2: scary. It was. It boggles the mind. Look, here's how old I am. What's his name? The attorney, the one that was so awful. He worked with, he started with Joe McCarthy. And it was kind of one of Trump's... Uh,
1: oh, Roy Cohn.
2: Roy Cohn, the leaders, it was when he was a private citizen, his mentor. Yes. And Roy Cohn's career began in part with, with the Joe McCarthy, which I indelibly kind of imprinted on a very subtle level on my probably four or five-year-old brain because the Army McCarthy hearings was on TV. My mother watched it every day, and so we didn't go outside <laughs> <laughs> and I and I kind of vaguely remember it, and then I pursued it because I was kind of fascinated by it. I'd read enough about it through high school, and by the time I was in college I wrote a barely one of the few substantial papers I wrote because I was a theater major, so you weren't writing substantial papers much of the time, was about that. And his compulsive lying, McCarthy's, you know, there are 375 communists, I have a sheet here that says there's 500 communists, nobody said anything. This crap occurs over and over and over again in the history of this country. And And he throws this out, and it took Welsh, a lawyer, after he was attacked by McCarthy, basically of being gay, homosexual, I guess was the word used at the time. Coming from Roy Cohn, I gather, from what I've been able to gather, his information, because Roy Cohn was... So (laughs) I forget the line, but the line that Welch, have you no... Have
1: you no decency, sir?
2: Have you no decency? I have waited four years for that to be spoken. Four years of my life I've waited for somebody at some point. And I was hoping last night, when, not the first time, when he talked about his son, uh, the second time, that I thought that would be a point to turn to him, to say something to the equivalent of that. This is my child. I do not speak of your children.
1: The closest we got was, will you shut up, man? Yeah. (laughs) Do you think this debate will do anything to change anyone's mind one way or the other? Mm -mm.
2: No. It may do a little of this, but I think it's mostly been decided.
1: Yeah. I have to imagine that during the the primary, Joe Biden was not your preferred candidate. So how are you feeling about him now heading into, into the election?
2: My preferred candidate would have been, I mean, any candidate, the cadaver. Yeah. I would go back to when I used to say a dead Ronald Reagan would be a better president. And then if you really wanted to scare our enemies and you wanted to have a meeting with the president, you would take our enemies <laughs> and they would come. The North, you know, the Putin would come and we'd go, you, we're going to meet with the president. You take him out to Reagan's gravesite and say, hey, we got to talk to him. And I think that would put the fear of God in them. I have felt from the beginning that after a while, that certain things it didn't matter who, if you weren't going to go to impeachment because of the necessity that it appears in part that certain things weren't done, that certain information wasn't pursued. And it's like with everything in this country. Now we're going to wait in 20 years. We go, whoa, wow, what a book. <laughs> and that's the hardest thing for me is is that I've watched this from the very beginning as if I was watching fiction.
1: It's hard to kind of wrap your mind around the fact that it's actually happening in in reality in america
2: i said almost from the very beginning as a comedian because it's really been i think there are guys who've done great jobs with it and went after him for it and something that i would call a pathology right what i would consider and i I think many people would disagree with me i thought that obama's pathology was hope big hope, and that's really great (laughs) if you're 30 if you're my age fuck you (laughs) I need it by Thursday. Yeah. (laughs) So I had done so many jokes about the leader because he lived in New York City and I was breaking in as a comic in really on the side. I was doing jokes about him all the time.
1: From way back before he was in politics.
2: Yeah. But he was acting exactly the same way. You know, I'm the best. (laughs) <laughs> Nobody better than me. Look at me. I'm the king. And I got tired of making those jokes. And that when he won, I just kind of I went. I can't keep making these jokes. And that there was a uh, a pushback on on something that I was reading to people just toward the end. As we moved toward the election, the most interesting thing about the election at that point in time when he won was is that we had nominated, historically, I'd never seen this, two candidates that nobody liked.
1: Yeah, and Hillary and, and Trump.
2: Yeah, that's never
1: happened. They both have the lowest approval ratings, I think, of any candidates ever,
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, so it wasn't difficult. It was like, are you kidding me? Kind of don't go, boy, let's get that bully in the in woodshop. To, we can nominate him for president or the one who wants to make the prom Cost 75 bucks. Which one do you want? I would read this thing. He was on a very early on. The New York Times wrote this spectacular article about how Trump formed his worldview. And his he was on a bridge. He was on the Verrazano Bridge. And he was there with his father. They were celebrating the bridge being built you know, and they were cutting the ribbon. Everybody was gathered, all of the hoo has He was 18 or 19. He saw off to the side the uh, Swedish architect who was in his 80s, who had kind of executed this extraordinary structure. And then he saw the people who were congratulating themselves in the, the group. And they weren't there with the Swedish guy. And he said to the interviewer, it was that, and this is the point in time when you realize you could choose two paths. There are two paths, right? That Robert Frost fuck thing. There are two paths and you could pick one. And he said, I looked at that old man and I thought, I'm not gonna get screwed Like that old man has got screwed. That's maybe a paraphrase, but it's very close to what it was. And uh, I thought, wow, it was the moment in time which is rarely happens where you actually see someone make the decision. Boy, I'm going to be an asshole. (laughs) Which truly misses the point of this man standing away from everybody and admiring his work, and probably not wanting to deal with these idiots who were probably the bane to his existence for years. You know, and I would do that, and there's kind of be somewhat of a blowback from some of the audience about this. There didn't seem to be a comprehension of it being something that was wrong. And I thought, wow, I don't know how else that's the satire. He writes his own satire. I can't and now it's like people will say, you know, you're not writing it. How come you're not doing more on Twitter? you The thing is, is, a I don't do it that way. I don't, I'm not, I, I'm not a punchline writer. But one of the other things is that what's occurring are the jokes. They're horrible.
1: It's very hard to satirize someone who's this outlandish, right?
2: It is. And also, you know, in a sense, of certain things that happen and I'd go, this thing, is, I'd kind of write it on Twitter, but I couldn't, I'd say, you know, it'd be a couple of days later after something horrible happened. And I'd say that, you know, that that was really the joke and the reason he didn't laugh was is that there was no setup <laughs> so I mean my job had become to write these setups and I'm not going to write the setup the one who I think my hat's off to is and, and has found a way through it and it may is Danny Borowitz I think that he's kind of found a way he's come at it in an angle I had already Felt the fatigue going in once he was elected. I had already had 40 years of jokes about somebody.
1: Yeah, I think you also had kind of one of the high points of comedy about Trump back in 2011 when you did that Trump 2012 segment, the Back in Black on on Daily Show with Jon Stewart, was incredible and really summed up a lot of what we're dealing with right now if you go back and watch it.
2: That's what he's best at! putting a bow on a turd, marking up the price, and selling it so hard, you want it, even though you know it's just a turd with a bow on it. America is that turd. It's time to let Donald Trump come in put some gold leaf on the border and marble columns around Florida, throw up his names in big lights over the Midwest, and sell this whole place to the Chinese before they realize it's half broken. <laughs> this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. A president who's not afraid to tell the truth about being a lying ass. <laughs> Trump
1: And I know he, he actually tried to get you on the phone after that. Is that true? What was the story there?
2: Yeah, yeah. the story was pretty simple. I mean, he tried to call me and my parents were either coming to town or they were coming to town and where uh, I was meeting up with them. His assistant got in touch with my assistant. can We set up a conversation and I was like, really? And I was, my brain was like, what does he want? And I think The Apprentice was on. And I thought, (laughs) I don't want to be on The Apprentice. No, you know. And I don't want to go through. And my parents were, um, I didn't have the time to talk. So I said, you know, tell them. Initially, I just went, maybe we'll try tomorrow. I haven't called back. So they called back the next day. You know, we'd really like to talk to Lewis. What would be a good time? And now more of stuff was happening with me. And I was like, I don't. I think I got the time at all to talk with him. You know, we're going to have to push this down the road. And then they got back in touch again. And I said, just tell him I don't want to talk to him. Because what I finally realized is, is that I didn't want him to feel just because he picked up the phone and called me that I had to talk to him. I did not want him. To give him a sense of entitlement, and but but also and that only arose out of the fact, in part, you know, I wouldn't have arrived at that kind of thought if I hadn't had the three days of kind of going. This guy is supposed to be an <laughs> yeah, entrepreneur big important and a businessman, <laughs> yeah. and he's building a mobile. How does he have more time in the day than I? Exactly.
1: Do? Oh man! So I want to talk about your new special, which I got to watch and was was really uh, fantastic. Thank you. It's called "Thanks for Risking Your Life," which is a line that I believe you you may have improvised at the beginning of your of your set. Is that true? How did that become the the title of your new special?
2: It was. It was. I literally said it when I walked on stage because the whole day was ratcheting up. The news was ratcheting up.
1: So it was Friday the thirteenth, March thirteenth was the day, which was a crazy day of uh, the beginning of the pandemic and everything shutting down. But you still had a show, which I think at that point a lot of things weren't happening right
2: yeah that was everything was starting to close the next day we had a show that had closed we were at a casino it's not like a health center (laughs) they had all these people pouring in and michigan had not made a determination yet they were getting close to you know how many people could come and even with that the reservation i think had its own determination but meanwhile as i watched during the day they were pouring in People, I mean, now the casino is crowded. So uh, I kind of go, I don't have any comprehension of what, I I have a comprehension of what's coming down. I just kind of go, this is it, because there has not been a big spread. I know I know for myself personally that uh, one of the things was, is I'm not going to have a tour bus, which I've been lucky enough to be able to travel with. Otherwise, I couldn't have done this because would be flying everywhere all the time. I was going to fly home out of O'Hare. Well, O'Hare was the first place that there'd been actual human-to-human contact and somebody had gotten it. That was the first report of that in the States. And I was like myself and one of the guys who actually did the tech of the show said, we both said, okay, fuck, we're staying on the bus. We're not going back to air. And we decided to head out that way. It really was a sense of like, this is it. It was getting more and more and more. And it was that, so thanks for risking your life was really uh, on everybody's mind. (laughs) Thanks for risking your life. There've been times when I've been kind of shocked that people show up, but if, if the stock market hadn't crashed, I would I would I would have been able to give each of you a prize.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. Like I talked to now a comedian, uh, Michelle Buteau, who taped her new special on March first. Beth Stelling taped her special, I think, on March 7th. And now you taped yours on the 13th, which is the latest that I've seen. The latest special that anyone's taped, really, I think, is the 13th. So you actually have jokes and material about coronavirus in your special, which I don't think anyone else has, really. That makes it very unique as well. So you had material kind of going into that about about what was going on.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was literally based on what I'd been reading and watching TV and kind of realizing that the ship was going to hit the fan and that I was going to have to go home and lock down.
1: Were you worried? I mean, are you you worried now that this is like the last time that you're going to get to perform in front of a big audience like that? Because nobody knows when these theaters are going to come back and people are going to be, uh, be going back into theaters.
2: No, I don't know, I don't consider it my last performance. I've been offered a chance to perform, but I'm not really, I don't really want to go do it at this point, because I don't want to do it and then stop. If I go back to perform, I want to go back to perform. If there was a kind of a special reason, or I went, oh, okay. It's hard to say. I mean, if it's, let's say it's three years before we get back into the theaters. I think we'll be back in the theaters sooner than that, but I'm not sure. And it all depends on whether, and last night didn't harbor, didn't be a good harbinger, if there are dogs in the room
1: the other thing uh, in this Area that I wanted to ask you about is that came up at the debate was the sort of vaccine skepticism which has been going around, and you had a great bit on that on the Daily Show as well, I think last year. But it was more about measles and you know the anti-vaxxers. So how are you feeling now? Because you kind of went after the people who don't believe in vaccines. But do you would you take the vaccine if it came out, especially if I
2: will if they're again if they're adults involved. I'm not going to take a vaccine like within the next. I'm not going to listen to. I can't have him saying you know I was going to be here the sex weights, but you know you're not a doctor. Some of the people at Chip show, Meadows showing up on the front lawn, telling me, acting as if, you know, wear a white lab coat then. Yeah. A <laughs> the stethoscope around your neck, Meadows. You're fucking unbelievable. Or what's his name? The other one. The financial. Navarro. Guy, the, not Mnuchin. The
1: Peter Navarro.
2: Yeah, Navarro. Yeah, that one. Wow. Yeah,
1: he's a piece of work.
2: Boy, oh boy. Every so often, there's certain, certain things. And the thing that I feared about Bolton was, was I felt that he was in part sired by a wall. <laughs> and there was the walrus blood in him. And with Navarro, I think there's weeds. <laughs> He's got that book. Well, if I had a non-political NIH, a National Institute of Health, CDC, all of the aboves, The really from the medical end, would I take it? Yeah, if they if they cleared it, yeah,
1: was that anti vaxxer piece that you did one of the more controversial ones? The one of the ones that you got more sort of blowback from?
2: Oh, yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. And I said when we would, when we were going in to do it, I said they're gonna go nuts. What did
1: you get back from that? What was it like to
2: you're forcing my child to take this? You don't know about this stuff, this causes this, this, and this. You know, it's the same basically misinformation that they have, and you're talking to me, and I kind of go, my mother was the opposite end of the spectrum. So my mother was like, when I was a kid, I had probably more antibiotics than <laughs> any human being. There wasn't a pill in sight that my mother didn't love. And I was kind of like, I had some problems as a child in terms of what you can even <laughs> sinus and all of that stuff which I inherited from her. So she's, I think, was handing me the drug as an experiment. But what i found over time is this, I'm not very allergic to drugs or vaccines or any of them. So in terms of the whole thing, would I like there to be some sort of test so that these kids who might be allergic to it? Yeah, that'd be nice, but we don't.
1: Yeah, and then they start coming back.
2: And the proof is measles was eradicated. You know, these things were eradicated. I don't have time to discuss this with you. Okay, I think we should be naming ourselves the United States of Sisyphus. 10 steps back. If we push this rock up the hill, we almost get it to the top and then it rolls back and now we gotta deal with it again. Who the is getting their health information on Pinterest? That's where you're supposed to plan weddings and find tacky home decor. Then again, on Pinterest, you can find tips on how not to vaccinate your kid and then find the perfect headstone For your unvaccinated kids oh shut up i'm up to date on my shots i don't hear your ooze. look this isn't a debate vaccines are safe and anti-vaxxers put the rest of us at risk so get your shots and find a new conspiracy theory that won't hurt anyone we don't even care how crazy it is you can think the earth is flat and the Tupac is still alive and lives underneath the flat earth like a 90s hip hop troll.
1: You have a great run in, in the special about how it's hard to be funny when everything's going so great, kind of a sarcastic bit about how terrible everything is. Do you feel like you thrive on, on that kind of negative energy? Because I know you've also talked about how you, you know, your comedy really comes from a place of anger. So when, when things are bad, do you feel like you're able to be funnier in a way?
2: It's not so much the anger that I see something. And so when I read, so let's say I pick up a newspaper normally or a, I, and I usually I like look at it on the screen and uh, and I go, oh, look at this. And so I see something they go, really? That's going on? Are you fucking shitting me? So I start to get wrapped up in... I I start with something that pisses me off. And it's usually that. And then I take (laughs) it out on stage because the... I'm funny when I'm angry. That's been my strong suit. So I'm kind of protected. That was the way I could protect myself so I could go out and yell about stuff. And while I'm out there kind of yelling about stuff, I hope that I'm beginning to find the kernels of where the, the joke is. And that'll lead me to it. And what I found is that a lot of that has to do with the, uh, the core of that has to do with the, the, the core of the anger comes from the fact that I believe it can be so much better. That there's no reason.
1: That almost sounds like hope.
2: It is, almost, almost hope. It's, things can be better, Is you know, but it's incremental. It's certainly not going to happen by 30. You know, when you read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, when you're like 12... When you got, you've been given this kind of information over time, and you just kind of go, really? So you're going to let that, you're just going to continue dump shit in the stream, really? And somebody told you what the, look, the frogs are dying, you fucking idiot.
1: <laughs> Another piece of your special that, that stood out to me was when you're talking about the media and talking about how, you know, CNN and MSNBC and Fox, you kind of imply that you feel like they're all the same, or they all have similar faults, which kind of surprised me. Because, you know, from my perspective, I feel like Fox News has Gone so beyond what those well other networks are doing. So I'm curious: is that do you really believe that 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 they're all the same and that?
2: I think that, that Fox had become a, a, an outlet for him. That's for sure. But I also think that MSNBC responded in their own fashion of you know there's a drumbeat and they've got drumbeat on the other side. And CNN kind of I think CNN since the Gulf War has completely lost its way. I mean it has its moments, but I mean what I really found disturbing was bringing six people on. That really bothered me, bringing in these people. You don't even know who they are. And there's a website you've never heard of. And you go, come on, guy. <laughs> and then you turn to somebody and go, you've heard of this Which, so, Oh, yeah, it's one of the great websites. <laughs> really? And especially in terms of MSNBC and, and Fox, it is, it's a lot of clutter without much news. They have a lot of time to fill. And CNN doesn't do it. You, know, you still get your 20 minutes and then they're repeating it. OK, so if there is a need for stimulus, I think CNN's job, since they can't seem to find people in uh, political power... To talk to congressmen they that seems to come out the window so they seem to get commentators which is appalling but since they seem to have let that go all these people all over the country pick some states and go you know what do those states need in terms of how would those states be aided and what would they need in terms of stimulus package instead of saying we need a stimulus. Your job is to go out there and get me information.
1: But that wouldn't get as good ratings as people screaming at each other.
2: No, it wouldn't. But somebody's got to do it. I believe at this point in time, if somebody came up with a channel called Fact, just went through the day kind of going through facts, for all of what they see as this kind of divided country, most of the folks are in the middle. That has not fucking changed. Scream all they fucking want. But the middle is the middle. About probably 10 years ago, I began to go, holy God, they've driven me to the middle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's really where it is.
1: You never thought you'd end up in the middle? Never. Coming up, Lewis breaks down how he almost got pushed out of The Daily Show and later gets genuinely emotional about what it meant to play anger in Pixar's Inside Out. I want to get back to The Daily Show a little bit, because I think people might not know that you're, I believe, the only contributor to appear with Craig Kilborn, Jon Stewart, and Trevor Noah. You've been there the whole time.
2: Yeah. And whoever else they want to bring on next. <laughs>
1: How did you get your start there? How did you end up on that show?
2: I got my start there because I was, I couldn't find an agent to do stand-up, really, which is what I was kind of being involved in and wanted to do at that point. was kind of transitioning to it. I was seen in clubs a lot, and and people knew I had a lot of material. Liz Winstead was a comedian at the time. And she's one of the exec producers. It was kind of her idea. Hank Gallo, who was a very good friend, became a good friend, but he had, was a part of it. And they approached me because they knew I had, nobody'd seen my material. They knew I had, it's like CNN, they needed stuff. <laughs> so I, I had stuff. So that was the way it started.
1: There's been an incredible consistency to the Back in Black segment over the years from the, you know, the theme music to the, just the way it's presented. Do you feel like it's it's evolved or your approach to it has changed either through the different hosts or just over time?
2: Yeah, I think it, it's changed over and over. It's, uh, it started, I was doing it by myself in a room without an audience <laughs> and I would improv it. So I'd do it three or four times and then they go, back, do this, try that. And then it went from that to where I, they brought in an audience so I would start to write it and then I would work with the guys writing it and then it kind of went and it was just me, no vi- visuals. And then and what I really wanted to do never came to be was, was what I wanted was the five minutes they thought they were especially by the time john was on there was five minutes a week they were thrown away of great jokes he may not have thought they were great <laughs> jokes they were great jokes and i felt what i wanted to do was to do to be the kind of to do the wrap-up that would be the back and black and here's the here's the summary of the week that's what i wanted to do
1: sort of at the end of the week
2: Right. I've only networked once, and why I don't believe in networking? I go to a party (laughs) to network, and I kind of present this idea, and when all comes to pass, it comes back as they hand me a bunch of videos, and let's take this work, and it was fine. It worked out fine. You know, I certainly can't yell about it because it went hand in hand with the it and being on Conan and a bunch of other things kind of lifted. They call it, they used to call it TVQ and people kind of started to know me. And Comedy Central kind of made me, me and David Tell became kind of part of the faces of Comedy Central outside of the the ones who, who were seen kind of regularly. And, and it did evolve. It was like crazy things, you know? <laughs> Squirrel races and uh, pig races and all sorts of crazy videos from China. And people were just throwing this stuff away. And we were picking it up. And I would sit with a group of writers and we'd work on it. And then John kind of came in. And when John kind of started to take it under his wing, they were actually, they had a couple of producers who wanted to get rid of me. When John came in, after John came in for a while, they, they wanted to get rid of me and they just didn't get me. Felt I was not a part of it. That made me psychotic. I didn't know it I did not realize at the time until I read later on that that was what was going on. But I did feel they were cutting lines that I had written. You know, this isn't funny. And then the guys I were working with would say, well, we saw Lewis do this in his act. He gets a big election. He's giving us, it's a gift. He's kind of giving us that line. Oh, no, we can do better. So I was dismissed as a writer. And I I thought about leaving. And then I thought, what the fuck is? matter what are you stupid it's a paying gig and it's a very good gig and if they want to write the stuff great and if they can't write to you fine you'll act it and make it yours but what was good was that by that time I had most folks who can write well knew how to write for me I'm not difficult. I'm not, a. it's not hard to, to <laughs> write for parking.
1: You have a very distinct voice. Yes.
2: Yeah, it's, it's not a hard voice. <laughs>
1: did John kind of stay out of it or did he have your back or how did that play out?
2: I don't know. I mean, I think in the end kind of went with me. They weren't able to cut me out of the show. And then it continued to evolve with him. And then even with him, uh, as time went on, John was really, and not to discredit him, but he's a micromanager and he's good, not a bad man manager he's a very good micromanager but it didn't leave much room so i would be doing the choice would be i would be part of the show so they were picking out what the subject would
1: be you didn't get to choose what you were talking about anymore
2: no and then if i sent in stuff that i wanted to talk about it was like no no we're gonna do so it's fine it was all very fine because meanwhile i was getting a raise every year
1: Oh, that's good. <laughs> it,
2: it was like literally because I was touring as a comic, which is what I wanted to really do. And it was keeping my face out there for other things like TV shows or movies. But, um, it was like an advertisement, you know, and here's Lewis Black.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great advertisement. You
2: no, know, And then with Trevor, it's been great with Trevor because he really, he in a sense, I think John wrote pretty well for me. Trevor writes really well for me. Trevor really will kind of work on something and he'd go Lewis wouldn't say that and I'm sitting there because <laughs> I don't really write that form because they took the form away from me so early that I just went okay and then I'll contribute stuff and lines and things but I do most of my comedy writing in front of an audience. So if I'm, sometimes if I'm doing the show and I can sense something in the audience, I can get a, a laugh by doing something because we're I go, ah, boom. We would work on something. And, he, and Trevor would go, no, Lewis, this is where Lewis would do. And so I go, <laughs> wow, that's really great. He seems to really have been, he really liked my work um, from before, you know, as, as an up-and-coming comic. That's and, uh, nice. And kind of, it's, it's been great. I have to say. And uh, it's been a pleasure. The ones
1: that you've done from home, the few that you've done from home must have been hard then if you're used to playing off an audience and now you have to do it, you know, with no audience on your camera at home.
2: Yeah, I mean, but even for him and I doing it that way, you know, even not being able to sit next to him while I'm doing it, because I like see and see his reaction. We'll move along. The last one I thought we were getting, you know, we're, now if we do a back in black, I think both of us are more comfortable with a back in black. I think when we come back, we might do a, uh, I'd ask him to see if we would want to do a, here we are together again, I uh, think.
1: That would be pretty special.
2: I just wanted to see how, you, how you're doing during quarantine. What's going on? Oh, just great, Trevor. I mean, besides waiting for your call, I spend my days trying to remember oh, what I didn't do that day. And as night draws nigh, I remember that I can't cook!
0: Okay, but if, you, if you're not cooking, buddy, then,
2: then what are you doing? Oh, well, I'm being productive. Just yesterday, I sat on my ass in the living room. Then, I sat on my ass in the kitchen. And after that, <laughs> I sat on my ass in the bedroom. I'm doing a whole year's worth of ass sitting in one day. This whole pandemic is like a reverse prison. All the people doing the wrong thing are outside enjoying their freedom. Meanwhile, I'm stuck in solitary, drinking wine I made in my toilet.
1: The other thing that I just wanted to touch on that I just have to know more about is you did a USO tour with Robin Williams, Kid Rock and Lance Armstrong.
2: How good is that, huh?
1: <laughs> well, can you tell me one story from that experience?
2: Well, I can tell you that if you, I wrote in I'm Dreaming of a Black Christmas, the last the chapter I wrote uh, about what I felt a real Christmas was is about that tour. You know, what I learned from that tour, it was what occurred probably the, the, the three major things that I can tell you. First, we all get on together. And I don't know Kid Rod and I really don't know Lance Armstrong. But I do have, the best thing you can have is Robin the Pope has picked me. You know, I'm the comic you pick, so, so fuck you guys. I don't care. <laughs> about every, you know, whatever you bring to the table, I don't care. But Robin has read, this is what I learned immediately about Robin. He's, he's read a history of Iraq. And so he's sitting there. So that one of the first few things he starts to talk about is the history of Iraq, detail without any notes or anything. And I'm like, so people had always said that Robin stole Joe and I'd seen him take one of mine actually. From when I was performing on the third tour with my friend Kath Lee, she Kath Lee turned to me. She he just said your joke. I said yeah, and he got a laugh. <laughs> so him doing that it was I went wow. He's got like a photographic memory, which might explain why things would come out. He's going through the thing because nobody I'd never seen anybody mind that quick not a comic so there was that you just you should know Admiral Mullen was came by with a book we were with him Mike Mullen was with Admiral Mullen was just one of the great him and his wife were tremendous I did three tours with them and they were extraordinary people. And uh, he had a book about Iraq and I said, what do you think? And he said, I should have read this book early. <laughs> I mean, which is extraordinary.
1: Quite an admission.
2: And he was really great with it, great with us about really explaining things and, and honest, but not like, oh, we, you know, something, oh God, he's letting us down. So Kid Rock, during the flight, we're on Air Force One or Two or whatever it is. It's really, it's mind boggling. So we're on the flight and he, uh, he starts to talk about, he's got his conservative notion you know he's conservative almost you know leaning it's hard to say because he's so right now I don't remember but all I know is wherever he was I was opposite I was like okay we are not going to be engaging on this we're performers we're here for the same reason and he's doing it and I'm doing it and so good good for us (laughs) I don't need to be in a fight with Kid Rock (laughs) and then there was Lance and Lance either in that on that trip as I remember it it was either on that Took a picture of me and my my uh, you know because it was like a seven hour eight hour flight my belly was a little out he took a picture of that and he showed me the picture <laughs> and he said you know one of the things I'm going to do on this uh, trip is I'm going to whip you into shape oh wow and I was like you know uh, Lance one of the things you should understand is that this body is a a vessel that I've been loaned <laughs> I'm not really here <laughs> I'm visiting here in this vessel so. You can try to whip this into shape all you want, but I don't really care (laughs) because uh, just can, it was enough of a little hitting him in the, the, between the eyes. He was not going to, so I kind of got him off of the, the phys ed kit. (laughs) He was very strange, really strange, but you know, there again, it's that whole thing of the way we are as a people. He, you know, he was good friends with Robin and, you know, and, and Robin him rode bikes together, and Robin really liked him. And uh, and at that point, he was not exposed.
1: Yeah, you didn't know everything that we know now.
2: oops loved him. And adored him. He would do things that was were appalling, like a president. He would. <laughs> he had that same kind of thing. They would. A guy brought in. A, you know, my friend Kathleen told the story. The guy forgotten the later on. The third tour brings in a magazine the guy. He, he obviously he's got this magazine. He wants it. Lance is on the cover. He wants him to sign. It, right. We're on a forward FOB, a forward operating base. And he looks at it and he goes, "Wow, jeez, I don't have this one. This is really great. Thank you." And he.
1: Uh, he, takes it?
2: he takes it
1: oh my god
2: there are more of those we could go on for a while but that's my lens
1: so the one thing that i do have to bring up is inside out because just a few weeks ago uh, we introduced my niece to the movie and she is now kind of obsessed but she really does not like your character who she calls the red guy but he he comes up a lot because she gets angry sometimes and, and so we tell her you know you're, you're acting like the red guy and so I wanted to to ask you you know what that experience was like for you because that was just this totally different thing that you did that really took off and you've become this iconic animated character for all these children who I think got have gotten a lot out of that movie so what does that mean to you to be part of that
2: It meant a lot because it was this goofy thing Pixar and Disney don't really people are like oh you must have made a gazillion dollars no you don't make a gazillion dollars <laughs> you They put out things with my voice, toys and stuff. I don't get any percentage, you know, in any most other things you get a percentage of that. But what they tell you, in, and it's true, is that, you know, we've given you immortality. Well, I'll take that. (laughs) So that's not bad. That's
0: anger. He cares very deeply about things being fake. So
2: that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. And I didn't have to sign with the devil. These guys are really great to work with. I had one of the best times in my life. I felt the reason I really loved ultimately doing it was that it was, a, I wish that that had been around when I was a kid. because I think it opened up a door to emotion, which, I mean, really, literally my generation, even a little less than my parents, but still a ch- did not have access to. Didn't think about didn't and then ended up going to see shrinks, but i mean because then people started to say you know that they would have you know like you said i'm feeling red today i'm feeling that but it gave them a way start to define the way they feel that's you so being a part being able to send that on to children in terms we go back to the start of what i was saying that to me is what's important The, the, the most important thing you do is to take what you learned and pass it on you don't fuck with it. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> There's some irony there that if you had had Inside Out as a kid, maybe you uh, you wouldn't have ended up playing anger.
2: No, I wouldn't have. I'd probably, God knows what I'd do. That's a really interesting question. It's funny. I've been thinking about things to write about, and that's not a bad one.
1: So we end every episode of the podcast by asking uh, comedians, who is another comedian who has made you laugh really, really hard, either watching them perform or hanging out with them, you know, backstage? Who is someone who comes to mind that just really, really makes you laugh?
2: It's... uh... My friend, uh, really makes me laugh, is my friend Kathleen Madigan. You and I really make each other laugh.
1: And is there a, a moment that comes to mind that, you, uh, that, you, that she really made you laugh?
2: There's so many. She's really coming into her own now. The past couple of years. She's really, uh, two or three years, she's really, a you know, comic will find their voice and nail it. And she's right in the middle of that. And some of the stuff she sends out on Twitter about me, pictures of us on that tour, she sent out one uh, a while People want to go look at her website feed about us. And uh, one of the things that really, really made me laugh, and it just because it was like, fuck, I wish I'd thought of that, was is that she does this thing about we're on tour together in Iraq, and she, because they put me in charge, so I brought her along. And she was on the second one with Robin, and then the third. And she says that you know, you guys came here. Look what you're doing in Iraq. You, you fix this, you fix that, you fix this. You're doing that. The roads are getting better. You're really doing a hell of a job. You know, you know, when you come back, maybe it'd be a good idea to invade Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great line. You know, you're not supposed to do politics, but it went way beyond politics. It's sharp. She really had two or three that were just great. It was, it was, And then we would do shots of us standing next to the Blackwater assassin She just makes me laugh. She did the other one. was is like when you're flying over uh, the Mideast, you're, it's like flying over the Bible. She's always been one of my favorites by far. She's a good friend.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much and congrats on the special. Um, the special will be available for everyone to, to watch now when this episode goes up. So I hope everyone checks it out because it's really, it's really great.
2: And also let me just mention, let me shamelessly plug. The one thing about the special is it will not be a special like you're used to. It's a, it's a very intimate special because we didn't have all the bells and whistles. We only had four cameras. We didn't know we were going to be doing a special, only afterwards that we said, oh, we actually have enough that we could do this. But the other was that I'm doing this thing called the Lewis Black's Randcast, which is a podcast that, in which after every show since, God, for years now, I've been reading rants that the audience has written after the show. My hour show and then about 20 minutes of these rants that I've collected. And as it evolved, like any kind of, this was my TV show, it went throughout the world. We have two cameras on all the time during this. It literally goes everywhere so we get we get stuff from sweden germany dah, 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 plus the united states but what evolved into was is that i tried to be, you know i started to notice that people coming to the shows and people in the city the state i was trying to make them shows like so if we were in the des moines iowa it'd be the des moines iowa show so that the, all of the writers either be from des moines around des moines or from iowa and maybe something about something that was a big issue at the time written by someone else. And the evolution of the writing, much like the evolution of any television show, the people writing in, one of the things that's worth listening to is the level of writing. It's remarkable. They write really well. I think they did a great job of editing, and uh, I do a little intro to them. And then what I had thought as we were going along that it was really evolving into something that I thought was, it was what I was hoping it would evolve into and I thought was special. I think it has. So I, I think it folks get a chance if they can take a listen. because, And I'll be doing more
1: Giving a voice to all the other angry people out there.
2: Right. And I'll be doing more of those. We're sending out, actually, even as we speak last night, I did one in the first one, and then I'm going to start doing... That's one of the things, since I'm not going to be wandering into your local drive-in movie theater or Zooming (laughs) you, what I will be doing is sitting at home in front of FaceTime, or if I can set up a little camera, and be doing uh, some rants that folks have written. We'll be getting those out there.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. I've been a fan of yours for so long, and uh, this was really, really wonderful to To get to talk to you about all this stuff
2: well it's really a pleasure
1: thank you you so much have a good one and enjoy north carolina
2: i will do that's all (laughs) i'm doing i'm doing things like this so now i'll go do something else to promote something
1: (laughs) until you can hopefully get back to new york someday
2: Uh, yeah i will i'll be going back after we do all of the promotion i'll go back but i wanted to get a lot of stuff done because i need help with the tech yeah (laughs) and it's been a pleasure talking i really mean that thanks a lot
1: Thank you so much to Louis Black for that fun and fascinating conversation. His new special, Thanks for Risking Your Life, is available to stream right now on iTunes, Google Play, and a bunch of other platforms. And it will also be on Amazon Prime Video later this year. You can subscribe to Louis Black's Rantcast podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, while you're at it, how about giving this podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at lastlaughpod on Instagram where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.